as Keith mentioned beforehand, we are blessed with our mothers. A picture of God's love, God's care, God's patience for us. Uh, I know I've been blessed with my own mother, and I believe my children are blessed with their mother. A great day to celebrate. Uh, This morning we are in Luke 19, verses 45 through chapter 20, verse 19. And I've unmuted myself so the people on the screen can hear me as well. I was wondering why they was getting like some dancing and some Mother's Day dances online. Uh, Let's read Luke chapter 19, beginning in verse 45. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And he was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him. But they did not find anything they could do, for the people were hanging on his words. One day, as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes with the elders came up and said to him, Tell us by what authority you do these things, or who it is that gave you this authority. He answered them, I will ask you a question. Now tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why did you not believe him? (coughs) But if we say from man, all the people will stone us to death, for they are convinced that John was a prophet. So they answered that they did not know where it came from. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And he began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and let it out to tenants and went into another country for a long while. When the time came, he sent to a servant, sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent another servant. But they also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent away, uh, and he sent a third. This one also they wounded and cast out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will listen to him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When they heard this, they said, surely not. But he looked directly at them and said, what then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you, the living stone. Would this word come upon us, not to break us, but for us to build our lives upon it. Lord, in the storms of life, may you be the stone, the rock that we cling to. Oh Lord, would you give each of us today great faith and hope in you so that we might build on the stone rather than being crushed by it. In your son's name we pray, amen. Well, what would you do if you had one week to live, many would 
travel to exotic places, eat fancy food, engage in exhilarating experiences, and spend as much time as possible with their loved ones. Well, the problem is we don't know how long we have. Maybe we have a week to live. Maybe we have decades in front of us. Or maybe we have one hour. However, there's something inside every one of us that knows, look, if we knew we only have this much time a week, we would live distinctly. We would live differently. We would do some things because life is almost over. However, there was a man who knew, I have one week left to live. He knew that at the week's end, he would live no more. He would die, and he lived very purposefully. However, he didn't live like we would expect. He didn't return to his hometown. He didn't spend time with his parents or relatives. He didn't travel to exotic places and eat fancy meals. He didn't pursue any exhilarating experiences. In fact, he spent most of his time teaching and correcting people. Now, of course, I'm talking of Jesus of Nazareth. The story right before this is him coming into Jerusalem with the crowd shouting, Hosanna, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. And he knows. Look back at chapter 18, verse 31. He says, and taking the 12, he said, See, we're going to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man will be accomplished. For he'll be delivered over to the Gentiles and be mocked and shamefully treated and sped upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. He's coming to Jerusalem, and he has one week left. And what does he do? He takes his time to teach, to correct people. You know, everything that happens from now until his death and burial, it's all one week. This isn't a week of going to the beach, grabbing a good book, having some nice drinks, before he goes to face the wrath of men and God. This is a week of conflict. It's a week of confrontation. It's a week of, week of teaching and correction and even of worship as he prepares for the cross. And this morning we'll see three significant events. And in each event, Jesus is showing who he is and how we should live in light of him. First, in verses 45 through 48, we see that he is the cleansing king. The cleansing king in verses 45 through 48. Then in chapter 20, the first eight verses, he shows that he is the heavenly authority. Verses 1 through 8, the heavenly authority. And then lastly, in verses 9 through 19, he is the rejected cornerstone. But first, in verses 45 through 48, we see, just, see Jesus. He comes, comes to Jerusalem. He comes to the temple. And we know from the other Gospels, he goes in and he cleanses us out. He clears the court of the Gentiles. He dries out those who are selling in it. Now, Luke kind of gives us like a brief overview, and so we kind of have to back up and consider the other Gospels and historical situation. What is going on here? What is Jesus doing? Well, the problem is not that people are just buying and selling. There's guidelines in the Old Testament for how to get to Jerusalem and trade or how to get a sheep because you're there, and maybe you from up north don't want to travel with a sheep the whole way. In fact, in the Mount of Olives, there were four designated places for trading. The problem was that in A.D. 30, about the time Jesus began his ministry, the high priest Caiaphas started allowing buying and selling in the court of the Gentiles. This is the outermost court of the temple. And along with allowing this, they would charge exorbitant rates, up to 12.5% for changing money, because where else are you going to go? And then some even have the idea that the priest would only accept as spotless, as blameless, those sheep that 
they knew had come from their acquaintances. So there's a little bit of a racket possibly going on. And so the issue is not the buying and selling, but where they're doing it. They're doing it in the heart of where they should be worshiping. And then that is why Jesus rebukes them. In verse 46, he says, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And we know from the other Gospels, he doesn't just rebuke them. He drives them out. He overturns the tables. He overturns their seats. The phrase, house of prayer, it's coming from Isaiah 56. In Isaiah 56, God is saying through the prophet Isaiah that all can come to him. He talks about foreigners, of eunuchs, of people who would not normally be considered worthy to come into God's presence. And Isaiah 56 is declaring they may come in. And here, they have taken this place of worship for the Gentiles, for all the nations, and they've used it to house their business transactions. Imagine trying to go and worship in the middle of Wall Street trading. Imagine going to the cash lines of Walmart during their busiest times and trying to pray and meditate. And yet it's worse than that because not only do you have all the noise, you have the sounds and smells of animals. Not the aromas you normally want as you try to meditate. And you're not calmly going through a line and then scanning your items. There's the bartering and trading and the ongoing noise. You can barely think, let alone focus on God. And thus Jesus says they've made the temple into a den of robbers. Now the area around Jerusalem has many hills, and often robbers would hide in the hills. That's why the story of the Good Samaritan talks of the person going to Jericho, and along that route was many dangerous turns and twists where you couldn't see far ahead, and robbers could swoop in and get your stuff and then go back to the hills before anyone had even known what had happened. And yet Jesus is saying, look, the robbers aren't hiding in the hills anymore. They've moved in. They've set up shop in the temple. They're so brazen, they're in God's house doing the robbing. And so he quotes this passage from Jeremiah 7. This has become a den of robbers. If you read Jeremiah 7, it's interesting because the people of Israel are still coming to the temple. They're still coming, and God rebukes them, though, because they're living sinfully. But they say, but we're in the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. Basically, what they're saying is, look, I come to worship God. It's okay what I do. I'm in the temple. You know, they justify their lifestyle based on their religious place or activity. You know, they, they're not coming to the temple to beg God to forgive them and change them. They're coming to the temple glad that God is allowing them to live as they want. God has become a get-out-of-jail-free card that forgives their sin but isn't calling them to a holy and new lifestyle. And thus Jeremiah 7 warns that the temple is merely a den of robbers. As we know, sadly, that mindset still exists, though the temple has been exchanged for other things. You know, many Americans think because on their forms they check the Christian box that they are okay with God. It's okay, I'm a, I'm a Christian. Or they think back on some event they did. When I was young, I walked an aisle, or I prayed this prayer. I, I pray, I talk to God, and so everything's good. Hey, I go to church every once in a while. And thus, you know, it's fine that I cohabitate. That's no big deal. It's fine that I divorce when I want. It, it's fine that I sleep around. You know, it's okay, the language I use, it's no big deal. 
you know, the movies I watch. So sure, it glorifies violence and shows things maybe God doesn't like. And I laugh at things that maybe aren't really that good. But you know what? God forgives. I go to church. I pray. I go to the temple. And Jeremiah and Jesus are saying, just going to the temple, just checking the right box, just doing certain things is not what God requires. A truly saved life is a transformed life. Not a life of perfection. Scripture never teaches that, but definitely not a life that uses the temple or uses God as a covering to continue to live in rebellion to God, to live in rebellion to his rules, to how he calls us to live. Now, it's very interesting. We've got to remember what's going on here. Jesus just has come in on the donkey. They're proclaiming the king has come. And yet, what is the first thing that the king seeks to fix? He doesn't seek to fix Roman government. He doesn't seek to fix the problem of the bad morals of the Gentiles that are around them. The first place the king goes, he goes and confronts his own people. He confronts us. Their false worship is the problem. And to bring that home, what's the biggest problem in the United States today? If we went around and asked people, we'd probably hear, well, we have a corrupt economic system. It only favors a certain group. Or you might hear, we have a corrupt government. Or we have bad families. We need to fix the family. If we'd focus there, then we could fix America's ills. We look at all these things, or you might think the problem today is those conservatives. The problem today is those liberals. But notice, every time the problem is considered out there, and Jesus comes and says the problem is in here. It's with his people. It's with the church, we would say today. That's why Peter says in 1 Peter 4, 17, it is time for judgment to begin. And we would think, oh, that's right, God. You bring that judgment. You let those... Fill in whoever you think the problem is. But he then says to begin with the household of God. Judgment begins with us. We are the problem. You know, Jesus came to Jerusalem not to remove Rome, but to cleanse his people. You know, our biggest issue is not the oppression outside of us. It's the sin inside of us. You know, the biggest problem in the U.S. today is that as a church, we love ourselves more than we love our neighbors we've loved living in the darkness while we proclaim to be children of the light you know we have transformed this message of a holy god who's come to redeem us and restore us to him into a message about self-affirmation you even our services you can go online and people will promote come and we will help you along your spiritual journey come to our worship experience worship church has become all about us not about god no longer is a god who loves and yet still condemns mentioned only a god of welcome and acceptance and so we live like the world and we are the problem jesus here is about to go to the cross and he didn't merely go to give us a better life right now he goes to give his life so that whether in good or bad in joy or sorrow people from every tribe every tongue and nation We'll worship him and honor him. That yes, one day we will be restored to him. We will have an incredibly good life that has all the effects of sin removed. However, Jesus is calling us now not to self-affirmation, but to service. Not to 
hoarding our possessions, but to give lavishly, to lay down our lives, not to soak up every experience we can have. You know, the sad reality is often people, even in the U.S., they reject Christianity because of Christians. And I wish they would realize Christ rejects most of Christianity and most of religion himself. He looks down and says, this needs to be cleansed. You know, look past the sinful people in front of you and look to the wonderful Savior. That's why we need to love each other so that we aren't living these hypocritical lives. You know, if you see sin in my life, don't go, oh, well, look what he's doing. Talk to me. Say, Pastor Jeremy, what you're doing, that's not consistent with the message you're proclaiming. And in love, I'm going to do that to you. Not out of harshness, but because we want to be a light for Christ. It doesn't say, we're people of the light, while we live like the darkness all around us. Christ, the King, comes to cleanse us first. And yet, as you can imagine, that's not a very popular message. And so notice what it says next. They were trying to destroy him. We don't want to hear this message that we're the problem. We want to hear that you're coming to get rid of all those bad people out there. And so they want to destroy him. But the people, it tells us in verse 48, they love him too much. They're all around him. And so what we'll see next and over the next few weeks is all of these attempts of the religious leaders to try and trip Jesus up to get him to say something that will either get the Roman government so upset they'll arrest him and hopefully kill him, or the people so upset that they will no longer listen to Jesus. And the first one we see is in verses 1 through 8, where they challenge Jesus' authority, where Jesus shows of his heavenly authority. And you can imagine what they're thinking. They're basically going, hey, Jesus, who in the world are you? A non-Levite, you can't be a priest, a Galilean carpenter, you don't have any education. Who are you to come in here to Jerusalem and tell us how to run the temple? What gave you the right to do that? And they think they have Jesus caught. Because if Jesus says, well, I'm from God, well, then they can charge him with blasphemy. But if he says, I'm from men, then they can tell all the people, look, he's just a man. He's not claiming any authority. You don't need to listen to him. And yet Jesus turns it around. Now, before we go on, we need to realize here, Jesus is not evading the question. He's going to show, look, if you would answer this question, you'll know the answer about me. And the question of where do you get your authority is a good question. It's not like this is a bad question. You're like, I don't need to answer that. You know, I've heard rumors that in some families, the children try to boss other children around. I've heard that's true. And I have then heard, sometimes on good standing, that those children go, you're not the boss of me. If y'all have heard of this, you can confirm it later. But I've heard that this happens. And then sometimes the parents say, hey, can you go tell them they need to come in and clean the kitchen? And this is what I maybe have heard has happened. That they go, you need to go clean the kitchen right now. If they went and said, hey, dad said you need to go clean the kitchen. Well, that has authority behind it because the authority is coming and saying you need to do this. Authority matters. And Jesus is not denying that. But he turns it around because if they would really answer this question themselves, they would know where his authority comes from. And thus, verses 3 and 4, he says, well, what about John the Baptist? You know, he claimed, he said, I'm from God. Behold, the Lamb of God who came to take away the sins of the world. John knew, so what do you say about John? Was his authority from heaven, from God? Was it from earth, from men? And yet, 
they don't want to, and they don't want to believe that John was from heaven. And so the very trap they thought they'd laid for Jesus, ha-ha, we got him, they are stuck in themselves. And so they calculate, they talk amongst themselves, what do we say? Because if we say he's from heaven, then Jesus is going to basically say, well, what did he say about me? Why didn't you listen to him? But if we say he's from men, then all the people are going to stone us because we're denying God's prophets because they all believe he was a prophet. Thus they end up telling Jesus, well, we don't really know. know, This is intellectual and moral cowardice of the highest degree. What is their specific calling, the role that they have been given in life? It was to share God's word, to be speakers for God. This would be like a pathologist who has laid on his corner's table a man with one shot through his head. And because the person who was shot or who did the shooting was the mayor's brother, he goes, well, I'm sorry, there's not enough evidence as to why this person died. Uh, There's one shot through the head. (laughs) I think we all know what happened. You just don't want to say what happened because you'll lose influence. And you want to keep your friends. You'll hear, this is the most important question these men would answer in their lifetime. Is John, is Jesus from God or not? There's no, well, you know, we don't really know. Yes or no. This is what your whole training, your calling is about. And yet they evade. And so Jesus says, look, I'm not going to answer you either. And again, he's not avoiding it. He knows if they already have answered it. And in a few days, they're going to answer it when they say he should be put to death. The thing is, they don't want to answer it. They don't want to face the public outcry. And this story really reveals the often used evasion of agnosticism. What is agnosticism? Well, it's a word that has two parts. Ah, meaning not, and gnostic, or gnosis, which means knowledge. Saying we don't have knowledge. And what it is basically saying is that on some topics, look, we just don't know. It's a claim that we really can't be sure of the answer to that. And thus, God may exist, or God may not exist. I'm an agnostic, someone might say. I don't think we can know, and neither can you. Now, there are some issues that we could say that. That's why there's a wonderful verse, Deuteronomy 29, 29. Some secret things are given to the Lord, and we don't know them. There are some things that we should say, I don't know the answer to that, and I don't think you can know it. However, there are some issues where we can't say that. It might be popular to say things like, well, you know, there's many viewpoints on this. Or, I've read different experts, and no one really agrees. You know, I, I just don't think we can know. No one can know. And, you know, that's praised on issues, some issues. Oh, that's so open. That's so humble. That's so tolerant. Isn't that wonderful that they just say, none of us can know and yet for some topics that is anything but humble and definitely not open-minded in fact to say i don't know if jesus is who he claims to be is in fact a dogmatic assertion because it's saying jesus you didn't give us enough evidence you didn't give me enough criteria enough rationale to say who you are it's a bold attack against god that says You have not given us enough. Imagine this morning if you'd come to my house, and when you saw the breakfast, you said, well, where did this come from? And I said, oh, well, I and the kids, we kind of made it. 
And you said, well, you know, it could have come from the grocery store. Or they could have catered it. Or they could have made, you know, we just can't know. I said, no, I just told you that I, I made it and the kids. No, no, we can't know. This is a mystery. You're not being humble. You're being arrogant. You're unwilling to listen. And God has clearly spoken in creation, in his word. So to go, oh, we can't know. It's a deep, unfathomable mystery. It's not humility. It's arrogance. It's to say, I don't want to believe what you're saying when the evidence is clearly in front of you. And that's exactly what's happening with the religious leaders and many modern agnostics in regards to God. Jesus has clearly spoken. And it is arrogant to say, we just don't have enough evidence. We can't know. Now, I'm not saying we should not answer people's questions. Yes, there are real questions, and we should seek to. But we also have to realize that sometimes people are not wanting answers. They're seeking to avoid the answer. The famous author, the famous atheist Aldous Huxley wrote, most ignorance is vincible ignorance. In other words, that ignorance could be conquered. They could learn, but he goes on, we don't know because we don't want to know. It is our will that decides how and upon what subjects we shall use our intelligence. Those who detect no meaning in the world generally do so because, for one reason or another, it suits them that the world should be meaningless. You know, he's very honest that for many people, and again, I'm not claiming everyone, and maybe today you have real questions. Well, please talk to me, talk to Keith, talk to others. There are good answers to real serious questions. But you also have to ask, am I just not wanting the answer? Because if I come to know there's meaning in the world, then I'm going to have to submit my life to that meaning. I'm going to have to live differently. I'm going to have to give up rule of my life. And see, we're back to the issue of authority. I want to be my own authority. And that is exactly what the leaders here don't want. And God does give evidence. Even to Thomas, what did Jesus say when he rose again and Thomas said, I need to see it? He didn't say, I'm not going to show you. He said, no, come look, come touch. And so there is evidence. Just come and see that you might believe. And yet the sad reality is for many of us that we can be like the religious leaders. We can claim, oh yes, God's my authority. While in fact, we're using God to push our own agendas. He's a trump card basically for how we already wanted to live. And so we use Bible verses, we use other things to just affirm our own lifestyle. Is Jesus your authority? And what about in your relationships? He says, forgive others. Are you living with grudges, with memories that you love to mentally replay every once in a while so you can feel justified in how you treat them? That you have a list of all the things they've done. Well, Jesus, as our authority, calls us to forgive. Are you purposefully seeking out to love and care others? He calls us to serve rather than to be served. He calls us to lay down our lives for others. What about your future? Is he your authority in how you think about the future? You know, it's easy for all of us to be anxious. And yet Jesus, as our authority, calls us to be anxious for nothing but to seek his kingdom. Now, none of these things are easy. I'm not proclaiming that they are, but we have to be cautious that we aren't claiming, oh, yeah, you're my authority, and then we live 
in complete rebellion and are fine with it. And so each of us needs to allow the Spirit to search us, to let His light of conviction go in that we might confess and repent and then maybe with the help of brothers and sisters seek to live faithfully to His authority. Well, in light of the religious leaders' clear rejection, Jesus now gives them a warning through a parable. This is the last, the third section, the rejected cornerstone, verses 9 through 19. And Jesus here gives this parable of a vineyard. We had read earlier, Isaiah 5, Jesus is picking up of this image that Israel is like a vineyard that he planted and cared for. And then he goes and he sends a servant to go get the fruit from it and bring it to him. But what do they do? The tenants beat him. And then they send him back empty-handed. You know, this is completely criminal. You know, they, they are rejecting the authority of the vineyard owner and saying, no, we're going to use this for ourselves. And then he sends another servant. What do they do? They treat him even worse. And then a third servant. And they beat him and cast him out. You know, these servants are pictures of the Old Testament prophets of Elijah, Elisha, Isaiah, Jeremiah, of people who claim came and proclaimed God's message, but they were beaten. They were arrested. They were threatened with death and sometimes even killed. So then the vineyard entered, the Lord, in verse 13, he asked, what should I do? Now this is one of many places where we have to be cautious that we don't push parables beyond what they're meaning. This is not meaning that God sits in heaven and goes, boy, I'm lost. What should I do? Man, this world's really different than I thought. It's an anthropomorphism. It's explaining in a way we can understand. And yet it is a really interesting question because it is, on another level, revealing something very important about God because just imagine you'd made an investment and you send your servant to go to the bank and have them bring in the dividends, bring you your check. And when he comes back, he's all blue. He's all beaten. He's like, boy, the banker beat me up. And then you send another one, another one, and finally the servants say, well, what should we do? You wouldn't probably go, you know, we should give them another chance. Probably like, I was calling the police after the first one. They deserve to be punished. And this is showing the Father's great compassion, his great long-suffering nature, because he doesn't then say, well, I know what I should do. I should punish them. He says, I know what I should do. I should send my only son. This is revealing God's deep, long-suffering love, his patience that keeps calling us to himself. He has sent multiple servants, and now he will send his most precious item because he wants them. He longs for them to repent. He longs to bless them. You know, God has patiently endured with us for many years, even as believers, as we still dabble with sin. He patiently calls us back Come back to me. Seek forgiveness. I want to forgive you. I want to restore you that our relationship can be all that it should be. God is immeasurably patient and kind toward us. And that's not how the tenants think about the son. So in verse 14, when they see that he's coming back, they say, this is the heir. Well, let's kill him and then it'll be ours. You'll hear there tying into some historical reality, but also some sinful folly. You know, in that time, it was common for a landowner to go away. And then if the landowner died, 
it would become, if there was no heirs, the property of those who were overseeing it. So this was a reality, and yet it's also sinful folly. You know, in our sin, we think really foolish things. Do they really think the owner's going to go, oh, well, they killed my son. I guess I'm stuck. There's nothing I can do now. No, he's going to act. And so we see this sinful folly. And what about us? Do we really think that because what we do is only in our homes, that, eh, no big deal? Or because only on our computer screen, no one will know. That, eh, yeah, God isn't really going to care that we've disobeyed. It's it's not really going to matter. Sin makes us foolish. And thus, in verse 15, it tells that they kill the beloved son. Now, remember the context here. Jesus is giving this parable right after the question of, where do you get your authority from? Jesus is answering their question. Again, he's not providing a lack of evidence. He is showing them, and the fact that they then, after this, want to get rid of him shows that they completely understand the evidence he has provided. This is also significant because this is showing that the cross does not detour God from his plan. Just like he didn't with the prophets and go, well, what should I do? After Jesus was arrested, they didn't then have to have a quick meeting to come up with plan C or D or F or Z because, boy, we're thrown for a loop. Jesus knows it's the plan for him to be rejected. It's the plan for him to be rejected but then rise again. And so Jesus then rhetorically asks the people, well, what therefore will the Lord of the vineyards do to them? And then he answers them. He answers his own question. He says, he will surely come and destroy those tenants and give it to others. But notice what the people say. They're astonished. Well, surely not. If you've read through the book of Romans, you know that Romans 3 through 5, Paul is giving this beautiful expansion, elaboration of, how we are saved by grace through faith, through Christ alone. It has nothing to do with us. But then some people say, well, hey, if we're saved by what Jesus has done and it's not what we do, why don't we just keep sinning? Why don't we continue in sin that God's grace would have to be given more and more? And Paul then replies, may it never be. Surely not. That's outrageous. That's scandalous to think that what you should do in response to God's grace is then go, oh, I can live however I want. And that's the exact same phrase, may it never be, that they use right here. Well, may it never be that you would take away from the Israelites and give it to others? The people, they don't grasp it. This is scandalous to them. But then Jesus does something amazing. Look at verse 17. It says, but he looked directly at them. Boy, if there was ever a piercing stare. If there was ever compassionate eyes that should have melted the hearts of the people as he looked at them again wanting them to know there is a chance to repent but if not you will be crushed and he asked them this question he says well what then is this that is written so he's trying to say look think of the scriptures why was it written that the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone now this is not just any random verse This is from Psalm 118. Well, where did the people 
as Jesus entered Jerusalem, as they were chanting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Where did that come from? It came from Psalm 118. Jesus is trying to make them think about the implications of what they themselves were singing. The king is coming. In Psalm 118, what it's telling is of all the nations, they're attacking Israel. They're molesting, hurting them. And God says he will come and deliver them. And Jesus is now saying, look, I am that king who's come, who's blessed. But it's not just the nations who are rejecting that king. You, Israel, are rejecting that king. And so later in Psalm 118, he's saying, what's going to happen to all those who reject? They'll be crushed. Anyone who falls upon that stone will be broken and shattered. You know, this cornerstone, what is a cornerstone? Well, it's put in the corner. And two walls would be put upon it. And all the weight and the straightness of the walls from that were off it. And so Jesus is saying, look, you can build your life off of me, the cornerstone, the foundation of what God is doing in the world, or you will be crushed. There is hope, there is mercy, but it is needed to decide upon. You must act. You can't go on God's patience forever. Well, he's long-suffering. I'll I'll take care of that later. No, now he is saying you must act. I think this is really important because it's showing that Christianity did not come in and then hijack Judaism as though uh, we're going to get rid of this. Jesus is saying, no, it was the natural flower of it. This is what he had planned if they did not accept him. But notice sadly what happens. Verse 19, the scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour. For they perceived he had told this parable against them. Again, they've heard this wonderful warning. They've seen the piercing look of the Savior, and they say, no, we are going to live the way we want to live. And so the same situation is put before us. We've seen that Jesus is the king who cleanses. He is the authority from heaven, and he is the cornerstone. You can either build your life upon him, or you will be crushed by him. He longs, he wants all to build their life on him. So won't you now? He still offers mercy and grace. It is not too late. So may we all, myself included, turn to the cornerstone and build our life on that solid rock. Let's pray. O Lord, prone to wander, would we are prone to find our rock, our strength, our hope, and so many other things, and yet your Son, he comes and he looks and he longs for us to come to him, to build our lives on him. Thank you for your forgiveness, your mercy, your long suffering patience that continues to offer hope and yet lord we know one day it'll be too late lord may all who hear not just be hearers may we not be like the religious leaders who then just get more angry and defiant would you soften hearts would you lead us into heartfelt worship adoration and joy in you it's in your son's name we pray amen